ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Yes, you are, and I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. We are live, and we've got a great show for you today, the best we've ever done. Ever. If you want to join in the conversation, we invite you to participate with your comments and questions. Email us at sol at reachmd.com. You can also tweet us or talk to us on our Facebook page. And, of course, join in by phone at 888-MD1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. Call us now. Today's guest is Dr. Sanjay Gupta, Chief Medical Correspondent for the Health, Medical, and Wellness Unit at CNN and a practicing neurosurgeon. He's famous. I talked to Dr. Gupta recently about being a physician journalist and some of the challenges he's come across handling those two roles. And later we'll take a closer look at a very controversial prenatal hormonal treatment for congenital adrenal hyperplasia. It's a problem which causes an accumulation of male hormones that can, in females, lead to ambiguous genitalia at birth. This treatment's recently come under fire for speculations of reducing the likelihood of homosexuality in females and is stirring up ethical concerns about baby engineering and classifications of homosexuality as a medical condition. We're going to talk about whether these concerns are founded or just plain media hype. And as always, we'll discuss some of the latest news and research from the medical headlines. If you're discussing it in the doctor's lounge, chances are we're probably talking about it too. Here on Second Opinion Live, so stick around. Because we are media hype. We are the media hype. And why don't we get started with our first recent headline. The New York Times reports on a new study suggesting that brain trauma can mimic ALS, which means that Lou Gehrig may actually not have had Lou Gehrig's disease after all. The study was just published online in the Journal of Neuropathy and Experimental Neurology, conducted by researchers at the VA Medical Center in Bedford, Massachusetts, and the Boston University School of Medicine. You know, usually our curious headlines, Matt, are like funny. This is very serious. These researchers have done a lot of investigation into brain damage among deceased NFL football players, and they link dementia and cognitive decline to brain trauma experienced by football players. Now, ALS seems to be much more prevalent in athletes and soldiers who are more likely to have had head trauma. Research from 2005 indicated that Italian pro soccer players developed ALS at six times the normal rate. That's astounding. And military personnel have also been linked to higher rates. And in the latest study, markings in the spinal cords of two football players and one boxer who were diagnosed with ALS indicated that they actually had a different fatal disease caused by concussion-like trauma, so some sort of concussion-like syndrome. Now, the spinal cords of these football players and the boxer revealed very high levels of tau and TDP-43, which are proteins known for causing motor neuron degeneration. The researchers said that these proteins would appear in the spinal cord as a result of blows to the brain causing protein buildup that would then travel down the spinal cord rather than direct injury to the spinal cord itself. This protein pattern wasn't found in ALS victims who didn't also have significant histories of brain trauma. Yeah, maybe on NCIS, Mark Harmon shouldn't be hitting everybody on the head. Exactly. Now, tying this back to Lou Gehrig, he actually fit the profile for this post-concussion syndrome. He suffered a number of significant concussions that we know about and a lot that we didn't know about. The guy just kept playing, even if he would pass out. But we'll never know without an autopsy because Gehrig was cremated instead of buried. Uh, the mystery continues. But this might actually redirect the study of motor neuron degeneration in soldiers and athletes. I mean, clearly they have something to work with here, and these patients could be considered for different treatments, not to mention giving doctors a better understanding of assessing risk. Okay, serious story here, because we take athletes, high school athletes, and the old idea of us walk it off. You get knocked in the head, you're 
dizzy. Hey, walk it off, buddy. We need to start looking at this and seeing if we can determine which people are genetically predetermined to get this. Mm -hmm. They maybe should not be playing football. Maybe not. And we might need to reevaluate how we look at football injuries and how we let players continue to play. I know they've started to become a little bit more stringent and conservative on that, but it's a very slow process. And there's a great deal of pressure for these players to keep playing despite awful conditions. Right. It's the idea of just tough it up and walk it off maybe is not a good idea. Pervasive in our culture. All right. So let's move on to another case. This one's a little lighter. Finding something other than what's expected, the story was first reported in Cape Cod Times and then picked up all over the place. A 75-year-old man with a history of tobacco-related emphysema and the COPD presented to his pulmonologist with increasing dyspnea, persistent cough, and recent weight loss. <laughs> Any red flags there, med students? Or are you, Matt? All right. The patient <laughs> was admitted to the hospital with a partially collapsed lung when he finally saw treatment. X-rays picked up a pulmonary lesion, and given his history as a smoker and the presentation, it looked like cancer six ways from Sunday. But several biopsies were negative for malignant cells. Finally, he was referred to a thoracic surgeon, Dr. Jeffrey Spillane, who did a deeper probe. And guess what he pulled out? A pea. Not just a pea, but a sprouting pea. A pea had sprouted in its new environment. <laughs> now, believe it or not, there actually have been other stories recently about aspirated plant matter taking root in the lung. There was actually an account last year of a 28-year-old Russian man who presented to his doc coughing up blood, and it turned out that he'd inhaled a tree bud that became a five-centimeter fir tree in his lung. If but, you believe the Russians, <laughs> I don't believe them. Thank you, my Cold War carryover colleague over here. But there is no confirmation of that tale in any peer-reviewed medical journals. There's also haven't been any other cases of plant life growing in humans or sprouting up, as it were. But Thank if you, you can't find a mason jar, there's a new place to grow sprouts. <laughs> but that said, nobody's going to argue how many things actually can and do get into the lungs. And Dr. Spillane responded to this case as just another in a long line of object removals in his career. And just days after the case of the pee, he removed a tooth from a patient's lung. Now, the pee was just an example of something small enough to get down there and big enough not to get out. But as he said, the most remarkable aspect of this case was not that the tumor turned out to be a pee, but that the tumor simply turned out not to be a tumor. I love this story. It gives Green Giant a new reason to exist. <laughs> You're definitely out of the cold war. All right, now it is time for our interview with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Dr. Gupta has a very busy schedule, so I spoke to him last week by phone. He's preparing to cover the fifth anniversary of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, with a special on CNN airing August 28th and 29th. And we spoke about issues that have come up in recent years about the ethical line that physician journalists sometimes walk in the wake of disasters. Our guest is Dr. Sanjay Gupta, a practicing neurosurgeon and chief medical correspondent for the Health, Medical, and Wellness Unit at CNN. Welcome, Sanjay. Good to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Appreciate it. You were one of the first physician journalists to report from the earthquake disaster in Haiti. So given the immediacy, how did you balance reporting as a journalist versus caring for patients during the disaster? You know, I think for many physician journalists, you're a doctor first. I think that that's just a very, very basic instinctual thing, I think, for myself, I think for anybody who was in that particular position. So with Haiti in particular, and I've been in lots of disaster areas and war zones and all sorts of places, there was an incredible need very early on. So while I you know, spent some time reporting, I think the vast majority of my time, really probably the entire time I was there, was really being a doctor. Interesting. And what really interests me when we talk about this is that I think about what kind of pressures or conflicts of interest must have come up in trying to fill the professional objectives of both doctor and reporter. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, no one would be so naive as to think that you're certainly sometimes fulfilling two different roles in a situation like this. 
But I think when it comes to caring for someone who is injured and, you know, putting on your, your doctor's cap or your surgeon's cap, I think people basically understand that, that in this situation, you know, someone needed help and you are the one who could possibly help them. I think that this idea that uh, somehow there's a conflict there, I think that's a little bit of an artificial conflict. I mean, I don't think that when any of us signed up to be journalists, it somehow was a, you know, put on a press badge and it somehow is a bar to your to being, you know, a humanitarian person, you know. So basically your, your gut instincts take over in these situations, and I think for the most part they're on the money. And it's interesting you talk about the artificial conflict that I think most people would agree with you, and you did talk about most people understanding that you don both caps and the doctor comes first. But <laughs> I'm reminded of that old saying, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. And your presence as a reporter in Haiti just after the earthquake did stir some ethical controversies and even accusations that, when I look at it, it put you in a pretty harsh light at times. And I wonder, how did you react to this controversy? How did you respond? I'm not sure exactly what you're talking about. You know, I don't, uh, you know, especially when I was in Haiti, I don't get a chance to read a lot of stuff. We don't have a lot of communication going back and forth. I don't know. Maybe you could be specific and tell me what you're referring to. Sure. A number of ethicists who were talking about specific cases, and they referred in your case to the captured case about treating that 15-day-old baby injured by a house collapsing on her during the Haiti earthquake. And it turned out that the child had a cut but no head injury. The coverage was criticized as exploiting good deeds to drive up PR for such companies as CNN. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on such accusations. Well, first of all, I'm not sure who they're accusing of what exactly. Are they accusing me? Are they accusing Time Warner as a media company? In a situation like that, I, you know, called some of our producers had run into a, the father of this child who was, you know, in desperate need of a doctor. He didn't know what was happening to the child. The child was not waking up, was unarousable. So they, you know, they called me, they grabbed me. I was in the area. So I ran over there and was, you know, evaluating the situation, you know, sort of at the time. There was a huge crowd of people there. And in fact, at the time with that particular situation, didn't even know that they were rolling a camera on it. There wasn't a piece so much as just, you know, someone filming what was happening at the time. I guess I don't really know what to make of that. I'm not sure who they're accusing of what exactly. When I hear and look at those past responses, I don't think in necessarily they were accusing any individual, but I think they were accusing the process of having a physician a reporter filmed during their care of, of any particular patient. And I'm wondering if while you were out there providing care, the vast majority of which was not filmed, in those small number of instances in which you were filmed, did you feel that there was any conflict there or there was any potential conflict of interest or pressure from the industry or the media organizations? First of all, you have to believe that there's some virtue in being a journalist in these situations. So, you know, by reporting a story, showing what's happening there, that it has value. If you don't believe that, then you probably shouldn't, you know, be there because, you know, sometimes, well, in Haiti, I never felt in danger for my own safety. Uh, you know, there have been other situations where they can be dangerous situations. So you have to believe there's some virtue in it as a starting point. Aside from the 15-day-old boy, you know, which was literally something that was you know, just happening at the time, I think that the only other time that there was any filming going on was when I was in a tent hospital showing some of the first tents, actually medical tents, arriving in that area. And uh, that was a story, was that, you know, after whatever period of time that medical tents started to arrive, they were resourced tents with all sorts of different equipment. And as it turns out, again, as the story sort of went on throughout the day, for various reasons, these doctors left the scene. They left these particular tents behind. 
And that was the reality of what was happening there. So we were there the entire night, as it turns out, myself and my team, producers, cameramen, taking care of patients. But our story was really more about the fact that these tents had arrived and then for various reasons these doctors had to leave. Is that a worthwhile story to tell? Is that a worthwhile thing for viewers to know? Yeah, I thought so. You know, I thought first I thought it was a story about progress being made, but then it became a story about the realities of trying to get things done in a situation like Haiti during an earthquake. And you were in disbelief at that point, weren't you? If I recall that story, you couldn't believe that the care of 20 patients was being, for lack of a better word, thrust upon you with a number of other medical personnel leaving at the time. Yeah, I think, you know, it's pretty hard to believe. First of all, I just didn't think it would happen. You know, a lot of times there are rumors and murmurs about things and we're going to have to leave. You know, there's some concerns about safety. And I thought, yeah, that's not going to happen. I mean, there's all these critically ill patients here. How could that possibly happen? I'd never, you know, experienced anything quite like that. And I've been in some pretty tough going places. It was pretty shocking. And then, you know, some of these patients had had amputations earlier in the day. They were quite acidotic. Some of them still had significant bleeding from their amputation sites. A lot of pain issues, as you might imagine. It was quite shocking that that happened. So, yeah, I think disbelief is a good word. Yeah, this was critical care with minimal resources. Yeah. And do you believe that your reporting in those situations affected in any way the volume of medical care you were able to offer your patients? Not the quality, but the volume of care. Were you having to restrict some of the time that you would have otherwise devoted to care to be able to report for the masses? I don't think so. The vast majority of my time, as I mentioned, was as a doc. I mean, the thing about TV is that you can literally, you know, do a two-minute live shot or, you know, two-minute sort of update as you're walking from place to place. I think in many ways it didn't, and maybe even because I had this access, you know, I was able to do things, see things where the need was particularly great and be able to help out in those places as well. That's interesting. Let me try the flip side then. Do you think it was realistic or even desirable in those situations to maintain what we would call that so-called traditional standard of journalistic objectivity as a physician journalist? I mean, you're in a very unique position. People ask that all the time. I don't understand that question. And again, I think it's one of those things where, you know, we're not talking about a political campaign here. So the objective part of this is someone should draw me the other scenario oh, things really aren't that bad in Haiti. Sanjay is just making it seem worse because he's also taking care of these patients. What is it? The objectivity, there was an earthquake. Lots of people died. Lots of people were injured, and there were a lot of people who were dying down there. What is the objectivity that people could think was lacking in a situation like this? The reality is that this was a tragic situation, and sometimes you know, people are so used to saying you have to present both sides of an issue. What's the other side of the issue? Tragic, earthquake, you know, natural disaster, poorly constructed buildings, very densely populated area, people living on the fringe, 85% of the country impoverished, 50% of the country living without clean water, one of the worst places on the planet this could have happened, 200,000 people dead, so many people literally caught between life and death. I would love for people who say, you know, we worry about journalistic objectivity to come down there and then define exactly what they mean by that. That's a good point that you make. And I think if we put it into context of the recent physician journalist ethical guidelines that were proposed by Dr. Tom Linden over at the University of North Carolina, I'll summarize a couple main points there. But there was one I think really should be illuminated from what we're talking about, and that is that a physician reporter who treats a patient shouldn't feature that patient. And by feature, we mean on television, on radio, or otherwise. I mean, do you agree with that as a guideline? Yeah, I think as a guideline, it's probably a good principle. 
disaster zones may be a little bit different. War zones may be a little bit different. I mean, certainly in a situation, you know, I'm a practicing neurosurgeon. I'm not going to feature any of the patients that I care for in my own practice. I think that would, you know, not be good. When so much of what's happening is happening at the time and the human impact of this earthquake on people, I think it becomes a little bit dicier. You know, you have to have good judgment in the field and something like this. I think it's good to have guidelines like this. Certainly, you know, you don't want to ever be exploiting the situation in any way. And I think that to the extent that guidelines like this can be a good reminder of that. Yeah, I think that's true. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Our guest is Dr. Sanjay Gupta, a practicing neurosurgeon and chief medical correspondent for the Health, Medical, and Wellness Unit at CNN. We're discussing the ethics of physician journalists reporting from disaster areas. What about the sense of heightened responsibility that I'm sure you feel as a prominent health media correspondent to return to Haiti frequently during this so-called quiet crisis phase in the rehabilitation efforts? What are your plans for returning if you haven't already returned several times? Yeah, I just got back. I don't know that we have an absolute schedule of, you know, how many times we're going to go there over the next few months. I think it's going to be pretty often. You know, I mean, that's one of the things, you know, the public, not surprisingly, has a short attention span when it comes to all sorts of different things, and Haiti is no different. You know, we have a bit of a responsibility. You know, we told people what happened there in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake, and I think we owe it to them to give them updates and let them know how things are or, or are not progressing there. And I admire that because I assume that, if I take an assumption for a second, every news organization plans to run a year's anniversary coverage of this disaster. It's convenient. All the providers will be there. But I'm wondering what's been on your radar between now and then to keep the relief efforts alive and keep the public invested in that. Yeah, that's a great question, Matt. There's a lot of intuitive things that someone might expect is happening in Haiti, how things are progressing in terms of the relief efforts, what's happening with the injured, people who are amputees, getting prosthetics. There are things that are non-intuitive as well. So many supplies, resources, getting into the country of Haiti, into the city of Port-au-Prince, but not being distributed adequately, which is just a real shame. You know, people are still dying there of things that should be very preventable, people dying even of starvation or dying of infections that could be treated pretty easily in most places around the world. That shouldn't be happening still. And a lot of it's because the distribution efforts are lacking to some extent. That surprised me a little bit. On a more positive note, there has not been sort of the second wave of disease that people often talk about with regard to a big natural disaster, infectious disease outbreaks in camps. And I think because water has been a real priority and clean water has been made available in many places, that's really helped stem some of that. So that's you know something worth talking about reporting a lot of the private hospitals that were open before the earthquake to take care of patients uh, in Port Prince and surrounding areas, many of those have had to be shut down. And this, uh, again, a little bit counterintuitive, but for a period of time, the city of Port Prince was flooded with a lot of doctors, almost too many, where doctors literally had to be told for a period of time, there's nothing really for you to do. We have more than we need. Surprising. But as a result, the private hospitals could not compete with the care that was being provided by these foreign aid organizations and many of them had to shut down. So you risk, as a result of a lot of the aid, having damaged the existing medical infrastructure even more so. And that's something that, you know, really has to be thought of in a methodical way going forward as to how to allow the medical infrastructure to sort of rebuild itself in a way that can take care of the patients who are going to have continuous needs. 
Why don't we shift gears for a few minutes to talk about your current work revisiting the longer-term aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. We're told about heading back to New Orleans to report on the fifth anniversary. What are your plans for this coverage? I spent a lot of time at the big public hospital when I covered Katrina five years ago. It was one of these situations where I, I remember I wasn't in New Orleans in the immediate aftermath of the hurricane, and I remember watching one day the governor's office of Louisiana getting on and saying, you know, a lot of flooding, but, you know, we've evacuated the hospitals, including Charity Hospital. But then almost simultaneously, Matt, I was getting emails from friends and colleagues who are actually physicians in New Orleans, some of them at Charity Hospital saying, you know, we're still here. We have close to 200 patients, some of whom are critically ill, you know, no ventilators, getting AMBU bagged for hours on end, some of them now for more than a day on end. And no one knows that we're here because, you know, they think we've been evacuated. So that's when I flew to Baton Rouge and then was able to convince a helicopter pilot to fly me to Charity Hospital and then started reporting what was happening there. And it was, it was an amazing thing, a tragic, that it was happening at all. But we were there for several days. And in this tragic situation, there were some really amazing nurses and doctors who could have left. They didn't. They stayed and took care of patients. They were the ones pushing on that AMBU bag now for days on end before some of these patients got evacuated. They stayed there. There was no power. There was hardly any food, hardly any water, hardly any resources, yet they were trying to take care of these patients. We are planning on getting a lot of those nurses and doctors back together for the five-year mark of uh, Hurricane Katrina to reflect on that time period of their lives and what has happened since then and what they think is happening in New Orleans in terms of the medical infrastructure, how it's changed and how it's going to progress. Well, Dr. Sanjay, before we cap off this interview, is there anything that you want to add for our listenership in particular regarding the roles of the physician journalist, your experiences, et cetera? Anything that you want to add that we haven't discussed today? There's an incredible thirst for medical knowledge by people of all ages, you know, men and women, young and old. I think that health is a great common denominator. And as I've traveled all over the world, I think it's a great common denominator across cultures and borders and, and everything. So... I think there's going to continue to be a role for the physician journalist. I think in many ways media and medicine have a lot more in common than people realize. You know, as doctors, we're always trying to educate our patients. We're always trying to make sure we can transmit knowledge that we think is going to make some change in their lives, sometimes big, sometimes small, but always important. And now as a physician journalist, I think I do the same thing in many ways, but with a less depth and a broader scale. So I take both jobs very seriously, and I think you have to if you're doing this kind of work. Well, thank you, Sanjay. This has been a, a great interview. I appreciate your time. Anytime, Matt. Thank you. Our guest has been Dr. Sanjay Gupta, Chief Medical Correspondent for the Health, Medical, and Wellness Unit at CNN, and a practicing neurosurgeon. We've been talking about the roles of the physician journalist and the challenges of meeting both demands in a disaster zone. His special on CNN, Looking Back at Charity Hospital During Hurricane Katrina, airs on August 28th and 29th. Now, Michael... We should talk about this. What are your thoughts? Well, I like his comment, media and medicine have a lot in common. I, I don't buy that. I hate to sound cynical. <laughs> the cynic in me all of us. Media today goes after the story that makes the money and gets the sponsors. It's like you, you see the news programs and here's the reporter standing in front of the courthouse where someone was convicted. Why stand in front of the courthouse? Because it looks good. It's because it's sexy. Because rather than just a talking head, it sells the story. I think when you stick physicians down in some of these war zones, it looks sexy. You know, it really does. It looks great to have the physician down there. So I, I like him. I don't buy the purity of his message. Present company excluded, though, apparently, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do. I, I've watched Sanjay. I like his story. He's very good. He's very erudite. But, it, you know, he sounds like a nice guy. But it's like media's 
prep to sell the stories. Mm-hmm. We're the only pure media We're on the We're the only pure we don't, media We don't have there. a sponsor here, so we don't care what we say. But, you know, you <laughs> could also flip it around and say maybe the ends justify the means. Maybe uh, he's still providing humanitarian service out there regardless of ulterior motives. He's still providing a great service for his specialty. Is that not true? I and mean, yeah, we can put that out there. Yes, he is. Absolutely. But I want to know how much he follows a script, you know, when he's out there, what the producers are telling him to do. All right. Enough with Sanjay. He should be here. If you really liked our show, he should come sit at the table with us. We'll now let's go, <laughs> go on to the ReachMD Forum. Today we're talking about a bioethical issue in the news. It centers around the practice of treating pregnant women with the hormone dexamethasone to keep female fetuses from developing physical manifestations of congenital adrenal hyperplasia. That takes immediate professional to say that sentence. That's a rare genetic disorder occurring in one out of 15,000 births where unusually high prenatal exposure to androgens can cause girls to develop masculine traits and in some cases lead to ambiguous genitalia. The controversy, however, lies in the fact that this hormone does not actually treat the underlying adrenal disorder, just the symptoms. And it's even been speculated to prevent females with the condition from developing masculine behavioral traits, including homosexual orientation. This has led to accusations of baby engineering. So there are two major players in this controversy, right? There's Alice Drieger, who's a professor of clinical medical humanities and bioethics at Northwestern University, who called the treatment exactly what you just said, a step towards engineering in the womb for sexual orientation. And this is in response to the work of the other major player, Dr. Marion New, a pediatric endocrinologist of very high esteem at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York, and one of a very small number of physicians worldwide to study the treatment. Now, back in 2008, she published a study in the Archives of Sexual Behavior that measured higher rates of homosexuality and bisexuality in 143 untreated women with CAH compared to a control group of 24 female relatives without the condition. Now, that's not a huge data set to draw major conclusions from, is it? No, but there's more to it, actually. A 2010 paper she wrote acknowledged the potential effects of the treatment for reducing traditionally masculine behavior in girls. She added that prenatally treated girls were more likely to be shy, while untreated girls were, quote, more aggressive. That observation is probably where the controversy started, Matt. And the paper also said that failure to provide prenatal therapy seemed to lead to traditionally masculine gender-related preferences in childhood play, peer association, career, and leisure choices. So clearly that brings up the question, what's next? And we know that in September, a consortium of medical groups led by the Endocrine Society is going to release updated guidelines on treatment of CAH, which are going to acknowledge the controversy. And the expectations are to describe prenatal dexamethasone therapy in use for about 20 years ago, by the way, but with increasing frequency now as experimental is how they're going to label it. But it'll be reinforced that the standard approach for cases of ambiguous genitalia is still to perform corrective surgery except that they're not expected to discourage research on this treatment, per okay, se. Now, now, this is a serious story because I know it's small and it's a small number, but the, the door is slightly open here to baby engineering, especially with regard to sexual orientation. But was that door ever opened by the physician who was being accused here? Not at all. Not, I don't think so. I just don't see but it. it. But it's there. And, you know, this is a hot-button item. That's why we're being very serious about this. There's no jokes about this. And, and there's a lot of people upset about it, you know, especially the gay, lesbian, transgender community. And I, and I don't blame it because what's next? People looking for a, quote, cure to homosexuality in this case? That's a very sensitive, significant issue because we have a lot of people in our society that like to put their own personal ethics into medical practice. Certainly. I wouldn't put physicians above that either in many cases. Including doctors, right. But I still just don't see how we're drawing this conclusion from 
data set that is so small and doesn't really even take into account whether this is a nature or nurture issue. I mean, it's just looking at a small minority of a small number of patients who turned out to become homosexual and then making an inference from there. It just seems like it was... You're absolutely right. What's important is that we at least bring it to consciousness and say, okay, here's a small number. Let's just be aware because, you know, with everything that we discover, everything that opens up, there's always a dark side. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people who would love to genetically engineer people into the perfect human beings like you and me as we are. <laughs> However, that's not Present possible. There's only, there's only two of us on the planet. But the point is that I think we need to just be aware that as we uncover these treatments and these things, that there's some possibility for doing damage to the human spirit. Let me put it that way. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I mean, I think it's premature to say right now. And I think even the, the news reporters came back on the story and said, maybe we inflated this a little bit too much. But You're right. It does open a door. It should be investigated. It should be talked about. All right. It's very premature. And with that, I think it's about time to bring this show to a close. (laughs) Michael's already checking the guidelines to make sure we haven't violated any codes of conduct as physician journalists today. Until next time, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. We break all those guidelines every week. That's why people listen to us. (laughs) For more about Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com slash SOL. Give us a shout on Twitter and look us up on Facebook and check out our free medical radio app on your iPhone. Get an iPhone, Matt. Too late. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Thank you to Tony and Paula in the control booth today for our best show ever. And thank you for joining us. Keep your radio dialed into Reach MD XM160. We are the best station on the air, and this is the best show on the station. Eat your heart out, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. That's right. (laughs) 